Hi, I'm Scott Lacey, and this is Talking Documentary. Pamela Litke is an accomplished Hollywood photographer who has photographed the likes of Steve Martin, Oprah Winfrey, and Justin Bieber. A glamorous job, right? Well, sort of. Truth is, Litke has always seen people just as people, whether they be rock stars or high school graduates. Some 15 years ago, while visiting with high school friends, Litke had a thought. What would it be like to follow kids voted most likely to succeed as they move through college and then into adult life? Litke found four willing subjects, and then a mere decade later, and many ups and downs later, she had the answer in her 2019 film, Most Likely to Succeed. It's an earnest look at the tumultuous decade where we cycle through college majors, girlfriends, boyfriends, a host of entry-level jobs, and an ever-shifting sense of ourselves. Litke joins me today from her home in Los Angeles. Well, Pamela, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So the concept behind this film is genius. I'm curious, how did you come up with it? The genesis of the idea came when I was home visiting friends from high school, like, I guess at this point now, 13 or 14 years ago. And we were just talking about, you know, what happened to this person or that person. And then I had the idea that it would be really interesting to follow people that just left high school with that title, most likely to succeed. And there's not necessarily that much weight attached to it at that time. It's like something your peers vote when you're in high school and it's like a yearbook thing. But it actually does It did to me have meaning. And obviously, if you're looked at a certain way, it's always been curious to me, like what becomes of people. The film became a much bigger thing, especially with when it was released and what was going on in the world in 2020 in terms of racial inequity and white privilege and things like that. So by doing this film, you were committing yourself to these students for a long time. I'm curious, how did you choose the specific students knowing that they'd be a good fit over the the longer haul? When we started, I was trying to find kids from all over the country. Once I found those kids, they had to commit to being filmed for 10 years and they had to be voted most likely to succeed in their class. And uh, we actually started with, I think, seven or eight kids knowing that it would probably ultimately be pared down to, you know, four or five, just because there's only so much time in a film. And I really didn't want to split it up into a series. I wanted it to be the full evolution in, in, in one, uh, in one sitting. Was there anyone that, that you were following initially that uh, dropped out of the process? No one dropped out of the process, but along the way, some of the kids were not as honest on camera in a way that, you know, you, you want to kind of break through and really be living their lives with them. And when they don't allow that to happen, it just doesn't make for as much as interesting of a story. And also casting, you know, at the outset, a wider net than ultimately we knew we would need for that exact reason. Like, thinking, you know, some would drop out of the project or some, you know, I didn't know them all that well. And at 18, you're a much different kind of a person too. It sounds like a really fun idea. 
And then you're like, oh, wait, this person keeps showing back up with a camera, you know, and it's you, you then you start to feel exposed. So my understanding is that the crew size actually changed over the course of time. And I, I suspect that's because you learned something about the effect of having a crew around. So you think it started smaller and then got bigger? Is that your assumption? Well, you know, that would have been my assumption, but I read otherwise. Yes. Well, at the outset, it was a bigger crew. It was two cameras and a sound person and a producer. And then what I started to learn, I'm a photographer. That's my background is in photography. And I shoot as well, you know, as you know, a director, I'm a director that shoots and I enjoy it. But what I found was just when sometimes things would come up very quickly, you know, something was happening in the lives of one of the subjects and I just needed to get out there as soon as I could. And a couple times that happened where I would just go out there with a camera and do the sound myself. And it was just so much more intimate. And it would just be me sitting, having a conversation with one of the subjects, which I always kind of felt like it was way less intimidating and way less seeming like, Oh, Hollywood just showed up at my dorm room, you know? And so it, it, it got rid of a little bit of a, you know, Oh, there's a film crew and film crew wasn't there. And it was just me and a camera. It would be way more interesting. So before we go too much further into that, tell us a little bit about the four individuals you, you wound up with. So, like you said, we followed four kids for 10 years. All were voted most likely to succeed. Uh, one of them is the son of two professors living in L.A. And that's Peter, right? That is Peter. And then there's Quay, who is from Detroit, raised by a single mom. And then Sarah, who's the daughter of two pastors. Uh, she's from South Florida. And then Charles, who goes by Disco, who was raised also in Detroit by uh, his adoptive parents. Way and Disco are black and Sarah and Peter are both white. So I'm, I'm curious how you uh, would develop trust with these kids right off the bat. To your point, if they don't open up, you don't have a film. What kind of techniques did you use to get them to trust you and trust the process? I don't know if it was necessarily any any conscious technique that I use, but I I am a trustworthy person. I don't look the part of what I think someone would assume someone from Hollywood, quote unquote, looks like. I just look like a regular person and I am a regular person. And I so enjoy meeting people, talking to people. And this is what I do for a living anyway. It's, you know, kind of in an anthropological way. But as far as gaining their trust, I think it was a leap of faith for them as well as myself. And they did trust me. And I know I very much earned their trust over time. But at the beginning, I think it was just kind of an exciting, fun thing for them. And it was a leap and they took it and really to their credit went on this journey with me and I'm always just so appreciative of what they gave me and like really impressed with them too. I I am not a person that could ever <laughs> do what I asked of them. So I'm so impressed by that. Yeah. I was going to say that at that 
time in life, I didn't know what I was doing from month to month. I'm curious, did they all, all four of them remain committed to the project at, at the same level for the entire 10 years? Or was there a little bit of coaxing? Uh, never coaxing with these four at all, but some of them would, you know, go through different things in their lives and then they wouldn't be as responsive way kind of fell out for a couple of years. And then she came back and I was so happy. I really, I wasn't sure if she would. And then when she did, I was, I, I was so happy, but you know, I, you, you understand, you know, this is like their real lives and they are actually going through real things. There's a, there's a level of understanding there for sure. Even though the hope is they don't fall out. I'm, I'm curious about the process of staying connected to them over the 10 years. What did you do? Like when you weren't with them filming them to stay abreast of, of what they were doing? Um, when I very first started the project, which was 2007 is when they graduated. I guess I really started trying to find them at the end of 2006, but that's when Facebook really became a connecting social media tool. And so they all were on Facebook and I think even before I was, but I, I would look at their Facebook pages every single day. And it was also in a time when people, and maybe it's a younger people thing, but they would just put every single thing that was going on in their lives on Facebook. Like it, Facebook used to ask the question, Oh my God, I can't remember how it was worded now, but it's like what, what, you know, what they were doing. And they, they all were very active on Facebook. So I, that was a, an amazing tool. I sent them all cameras so that once a month, I wanted them to take a photo of themselves every single day and also send me the photos of whatever was happening around them. A couple of them were great at it and a couple of them it didn't really do it that much. But then I just started collecting these photos from Facebook literally like almost every day. I would just do a check-in, collect data, see what they were doing. And also, you know, texting and they knew to get in touch with me if something was going on or something that would maybe be of interest for the film. You know, they were great active participants and they understood what we were trying to do. So I can't help but wonder as a documentary director, what it's like to do this day after day after day for 10 years. How do you pace yourself? Um, what was that like for you? Well, it really wasn't a day after day. It didn't feel that way because I'm a commercial photographer and that is essentially my day job. I work a lot and this would be relegated mostly to times where I wasn't working. And I knew that there are lulls throughout the year in the, in with what I do. And I would really be active in the documentary when during those times between that and then really uh, responding to when something would be worth filming it was like that, but it wasn't, I would think about it every day, but it wasn't like I was living it every day. It's probably worth inserting here that you're an extraordinary photographer who has worked with a list way too long to enumerate here, but among them, Steve Martin, Justin Bieber, Gwyneth Paltrow, these are two very different worlds, you know, celebrity and Hollywood, and then these relatively anonymous kids. How did those two worlds interplay over the course of 10 years? The, the way in which I work, I really think is no different if it's Oprah or if it's 
Sarah Kaiser Cross from most likely to succeed. It, and it never has been. It's obviously there's the celebrity and yes, you feel it. It's a little bit different, but I get the same excitement working with non-famous people as I do famous people because it's just people at the end of the day. A lot of my fine art photography, I work, I, I shoot just regular people like in the middle of nowhere, Nevada. And I get as much excitement out of that as, as famous people. Um, it just really goes back to my love of why I enjoy working with people and just getting to know people as who they are. What surprised you in the, the personal arcs of the students? Did you have any expectations of how it would go and what happened along, along the way that made you go, huh, I didn't see that coming? It's hard to say because I actually, obviously, I do know what happened now at this point. So when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I would have predicted every single one of these things to happen. But at the same time, it's like, no, not at all. I would not have predicted any of this. They're all still the exact same kids that they were. But their journeys, where they went is hard to, to say. I could have predicted, but um, not that I'm surprised by any of it, really. Making a film like this is an extreme act of delayed gratification. I'm curious, was there any point where you were just kind of anxious to get something out there or, or were you just committed that this is 10 years, I'm going to stay the course? Uh, <laughs> I completely stayed the course. I never once for a minute was like, oh, in five years. The, the thing with the 10 years was initially my thinking was we'll start at their graduations and it will culminate at their 10 year reunions because it just seemed like such a natural bookend. And I think that since Facebook, the 10 year reunion really seems to have gone away because everyone is still totally in touch and no one really feels a need to have a reunion. And none of these kids, none of their high schools had reunions, which was really interesting to me. But so the 10 years, that was always just in the back of my mind. It was going to be 10 years and you had to let those 10 years play out to really be an arc form. We were editing along the way, but, you know, obviously really putting it together after filming was complete. And that part got very long and sometimes frustrating and very challenging. And then, you know, then parts of it were amazing. I'm curious, did the kids have any awareness of the others or in their minds, were they really kind of alone and unto themselves? When, when we started out and they knew that there were eight of them, I never told them anything after that. I never told them otherwise. But uh, Way and Disco happened to go to the same high school, um, but their stories were obviously so not connected and they should not have been connected. So they never really were, but they, they did know each other. No one else knew each other though. And, uh, they always would ask me about the other kids though. They were always curious if they were going to be perceived as, you know, successful or if they were like looking in, in a good light. And I'm like, you guys, it's so not about that. And you know, that. But they did meet. We had a premiere for the film and they all came out and met. And uh, they're still in touch, which I love. It's so interesting to me that they are connected after the fact, but not during the experience. They're graduates of a program that that they never really could see each other. I, I think that's that's so neat. 
Right. It's like an experiment and they all bond from having lived through it together. So I'm, I'm curious about the screening. I, I would imagine it would be somewhat painful to relive a lot of that portion of life for anyone. How did they react? I think that, uh, you know, they were prepared. They knew they all were very happy with how it came out and how they were portrayed because they felt it was really honest, which made me really happy. Yes, some of those moments were kind of probably rough to relive, but they, they enjoyed it. This was noted in an interview I read. The idea that the four kids kind of break down into two basic groups, the one group for whom success is kind of expected and maybe not surprising and they encounter relatively few bumps along the way. And then the group that probably doesn't take for granted that success is at the end of the, the rainbow. And they do get bumped around a lot. Obviously, I knew their backgrounds and where they had come from. And I was never looking at it as trying to tell the story of the racial, the disparity. And I mean, I knew it would come out and I wanted it to just come out in a very genuine way without any sort of spin on it or my own take on it. I just wanted it to be very real and just observing, you know, what what their journeys were. You know, I look at what Quay and Disco both went through and, you know, at times especially things that happened with Quay, I mean, really would break my heart. It was a really interesting hands-on look from, at my, you know, myself just observing this. I was really close to them and embedded in what they were doing, but, you know, still trying to have an arm's length as a filmmaker. So this film could easily have continued indefinitely. Was there ever a point where you were tempted to let it run? Definitely. Yes. You know, a lot of people have asked for follow up or they always want to know, you know, where are they now? What are they doing? And I'm so interested in that too, but I do think about going back for maybe not 10 years, but doing, doing some follow up with them. I, I also think that between 30 and 40 life gets really interesting None of them had kids at that point when the filming finished. One of them was married, not married. Um, but, you know, things are like really starting to happen in their lives now, which I, I think is so interesting, too. And the world is such a different place now also. So I have to ask, the film is just wonderfully constructed. Um, it, this is kind of a unique reaction I had. I watched it late at night and I went for a walk afterward and I just felt uplifted in the most organic way possible. Uh, it was just a home run of a film. And I'm wondering, how did you do this in your first, I believe your first attempt at a feature length documentary? Did you have any mentors? Like, how did you accomplish that? Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. That's so nice. I didn't necessarily have any mentors, but I think it was like an intuitive thing. And I wanted to just tell these stories in the most real way. They, the characters happen to be really lovable in their own way, I think. And it's really interesting to talk to people and hear who 
they connect with because it's always different people and the, the reasons why. And when I hear that, like, oh, I loved disco or, you know, oh, Sarah, I thought she was going to be this way. And, she, and then her story is like incredible. I don't know how it happened, but I love that you felt that way. About you in this regard, obviously you're this very accomplished photographer. That could be enough for a lot of people. And yet you uh, committed a big chunk of your life to making this film. And I'm curious if does documentary filmmaking scratch an itch that photography doesn't? Uh, yeah, it really does because I guess, and I keep going back to this. It's like what I do love about photography is like the meeting people, the conversations I get to have with any number of, you know, people throughout my life and through my job is always been fascinating to me, but yes, to be able to tell the story and actually hear the conversations and hear, like get a glimpse into people's lives. is I, I really love that. I get to do that. I would love to do another film. I don't really know yet what that would be, but it definitely does satisfy that, that itch. I find this an interesting subject because in my experience, filmmakers fall, fall into two groups. One is the kind of the accidental filmmaker, a story fell in their lap and they, they felt compelled to make it. And that, that was kind of it. And then the other, that's just kind of born and constructed to tell stories over and over. I understand that you actually, when I read, there is a project that is kind of in the works. Sounds very interesting. Can you talk about it <laughs> regarding the state of Florida? Uh, it's, Probably it's not. It's a little back burner right now. I grew up in Florida and have ties to Florida because my family is there still. But that project, I would not necessarily say is a project at the moment. I got to tell you that the little bit that I read, I was like, oh, I can't wait to see that. So just a a request (laughs) from a, a viewer please make that film because I will be the first to watch it. Okay. Noted. And thank you. I like that. So putting that aside, what, what else are you working on? Cause you've got books, you've got all this extraordinary photography. Like what is your next big thing? You know, it's funny when this film came out, it was the end of very, very end of 2019. And then 2020 happened and I was so ready still am to just jump back into my like being a full-time photographer because I did, I needed a break. It was a really intense last couple of years finishing the film. And then obviously COVID happened. Um, So to answer your question right now, especially because like my world of photography has finally picked back up and opened the world's opening back up. That is what I am focusing on at the moment, but I I'm sitting in my office right now looking at my, I have a whiteboard with a list of about 40 doc ideas that I do want to pursue, but I haven't really hit on the one that I could dedicate the time to right now. But that sounds almost like a promise that there is something coming. We just don't know what it is yet. There definitely will be. I don't even know what it is yet. I just know I have, I'm just, I have so many ideas, but it's like you have to, obviously dedicate a lot of time to that project and you have to really love doing it. 
I mean, I loved most likely to succeed so much. And the, the kids, I, I still call them kids, even though they're <laughs> 31, but I was just so close with them and still am. And not that it has to be like that with every project, but you do have to love the project, I think, in order to dedicate the time in order to make it successful. One question I didn't ask earlier, and I, it's it's a curious one for me. Was there ever a point when you, the kind of wiser, kind of older adult, saw one of these kids saying something that you're like, you're not going to believe that in six months, and you had to kind of bite your lips? Oh, my God. Yes. All the time. It was so hard to bite your tongue, you know? Maybe I didn't even bite my tongue all the time, but I, I yes, I would have those moments all the time, kind of laughing to myself or being like, oh my God, you'll, you won't even believe you had that thought now and like how insignificant something is right now or when you're a little more mature. Well, it must have been quite a conundrum because you're obviously an, an empathetic person. On one side, you want to help because you care about these kids. And on the other hand, you can't really interfere because you're trying to tell their story. And I would imagine that would be kind of a constant tension. It really was, especially with certain things that happened along the way. But I remember a few times I'm like, the camera's off. And like, I'm now not being a filmmaker. I'm being a human being, which was the most important way to be for me. Like I, you know, couldn't not be a person to these kids that I cared so much about. And especially after that much time and, you know, whatever, you know, you develop a connection or you don't, but I did. And it's really hard to, oh, I'm a filmmaker. I'm going to just be this way. Like that is not who I am anyway as a person. So, you know, maybe it's a non-traditional way of being a filmmaker. I can imagine one point where this might have come to bear is the scene with Quay in the car. She's gone through a, a major life upset and she's just spilling it out completely raw. It's just obvious that the camera just came out. I would imagine that was a moment where the depth of the connection between you and her was, it was certainly obvious to me as a viewer. I'm wondering, like, what did that feel like to you as a human being, not even as a, as a filmmaker, but just somebody kind of on the other side of the camera? You know, I had such guilt about having the camera on and I asked her I was like I'm gonna turn the camera on and she's like yes okay I mean I she knew what I was there sitting in her car with her doing but we really did have a real conversation which doesn't come across obviously um in the film because it's not my story it was just me saying something that her older sister would say to her a person that like cares about her because she's going through something and I really wanted to be there for her in that way, you know, in an emotional way. I remember the guilt of just even asking her, I'm like, can I turn the camera on? And she said, yes. And then I'm like to myself, I'm like, wow, what kind of filmmaker am I? I'm asking the subject if I can turn the camera on. It's a weird, really weird conflict to have, but I try to always err on the side of being a good human being. Well, I think the goodness in you and the goodness in these kids young adults, like really kind of permeates every scene. So I think you succeeded. So I guess I'm curious, like what you learned having made this film, because it was such a huge chunk of your life and you were observing people living the most tumultuous portions of their life. Like what, what did that leave with you for your own takeaway? Gosh, it's so hard to say what that, like a takeaway would be. 
But I do remember moments of being with them. And, you know, you're constantly reflecting on your own life. And I would be going through things while I was filming also. You know, I'm also living a life, even though I'm capturing their life. You know, I learned so many things along the way, but just in the way of just how life throws things at you, at anybody, and how you handle them. I was living my life too. You know, some people did suggest I should be filming myself, which I'm not at all an on-camera person. But yes, that probably would have been a really interesting part of the story too, just to watch my own journey. Well, it strikes me that that's a style of filmmaking that really emerged in the last, you know, five, six, seven years. So maybe you would have done that if you had started it uh, a little bit later in life. I know uh, as a filmmaker, it probably would have been so compelling. But again, I'm, I'm not comfortable on camera. I'm barely comfortable doing this podcast right now. (laughs) (laughs) I I hear you in every group that I'm in 99% of the pictures I'm not in. Yes. Pamela, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today. I I think I have two soft commitments on one, another film of any subject and two, a sequel on this at some point in time. I'm not, I'm not greedy. Doesn't need to be tomorrow. I would say that's more than even a soft commitment that will happen. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much. And I think you've got a natural talent for documentary. It just, it's something you feel in the film. You can't fake it. So I I hope you uh, do many more. Well, thank you so much. And I, I love how much you enjoyed the film. It makes me so happy to hear. And, uh, I appreciate you wanting to talk more about it. So thank you. Thanks to Pamela Litke. Her film, Most Likely to Succeed, can be seen in a bunch of places. YouTube, Apple TV, Amazon Prime. Go wild, it's everywhere. Litke has also published some insanely beautiful books of photography, including one called Vacancy that I really like. It is really, really good. Check it out. See you next time when I talk to Joe Brandmeier. He directed the film I Do. It's a film about marriage, and it's really funny and really heartwarming. See you next time. What is the perfect movie franchise? Does such a thing truly exist? The License to Watch podcast sets out to answer that age-old question. Join comedians Matt McGregor, Harris McCabe, and Colin Shaw as they dissect your favorite film franchises one movie at a time. Along for the ride is a different film industry guest for every episode. Listen as the boys play judge, jury, and executioner and decide which of your favorite movie franchises are worthy of a license to watch. Sports are easy to disagree on. Let's see what happens when sports talk hosts talk about something they agree on. Hold on. I'm saying drivers who switch and save with Progressive could save hundreds. Well, I disagree. I think drivers who switch and save with Progressive could save hundreds. Come on. Wait, I think we're saying the same thing. Oh, so uh, what do we do now? Everyone agrees that drivers who switch and save with Progressive could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings by new customer surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2020 and May 2021. Potential savings will vary.